0: Uh, next week is pumpkin killing. I would encourage all of you to come out. Uh, if you, uh, don't have a pumpkin yet, that's okay. We got pumpkins there for you. Uh, we, I, so, okay, we're trying to figure out targets because each year we're trying to, you know, because you're gonna, if you're shooting a cannon, you gotta aim it at something. And so the last couple of years, we, I mean, John and I, I think last year we, we toted down these, uh, these pallets and we spray paint on them. It's such a pain. It's so heavy because you're walking down these hills. So I asked Michael this week, because you know, he he's got some budget numbers and stuff, and I go, Can I have some money to buy some targets? And he goes, What do you want to buy? And I said, I wanna I wanna buy some like a like some blow-up things. And he goes, i will give you two hundred bucks. I go, Yes. So I have purchased two nine-foot-tall green aliens. <laughs> Three six-foot-tall beach balls. Ah, right. And I'm hoping when it hits it, it's going to go zoom. It's not going to go pfft, right? But either one's going to be cool. And I bought two six-foot-tall dinosaurs. So we're going to, uh, right? And, and so they, so everybody starts going, well, how are we going to get them high enough for people to see? The old targets were three and a half feet tall, okay? So I think a six-foot-tall or a nine-foot-tall alien, it's going to be awesome. So we should go to Pumpkin Killing next week. I am very excited about, you know, shooting the blow-up figures, It'll be great. I, I, I think last year we never even hit the target. So I think all the aliens are safe up on this side of the hill. So there you go. Anyway, uh, 1.30 to 4 p.m. next week, uh, there's going to be food and, uh, like, I think hamburgers and hot dogs and pumpkin pie and uh, bring kids. You can carve pumpkin. It's going to be a really great time. If you uh, get lost on how to get there, before and after service, we have this video that's playing and it kind of drives you there so you know how to actually get there because it's up on Orchid Hill. Uh, If you watch the video and still get lost, feel free to go to our website this week and on our blog, we'll have it up there. It'll be a link to that video so you can watch it. And so you can be like, oh, that's how I get there. So uh, bring your kids, bring your kids' friends, bring your neighbors, just... It's a whole lot of fun to watch Pumpkin shoot cannons and totally miss all the targets that we're aiming at. So there you go. Welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Oh, hey, look! Here's Corey's connect card he was asking about earlier. Yay! <laughs> uh, this is great. So uh, in these, you'll get some notes and questions to reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called UVersion. Click on More and that events in UVersion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. We're going to talk about what that means. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for rescuing and saving us and calling us to yourself. And I ask that in the things we look at today. We would understand how we are to be a sweet aroma in this world because because our lives are focused upon what you have done to rescue us, that we do not need to drop to the level of other people around us when people act foolish, so that we can be wise, uh, trusting who you are and the things that you have said and how you lead us, so that you'd be lifted up in all things, that you would gain great glory as we as your people live in joy. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in the 3,000-year-old book of Ecclesiastes. This is week twenty-seven i seriously I got like five weeks after this, and, and we're done with the book. And as I said in the last couple weeks, uh, two weeks ago, this week and next week, we're doing this block of verses out of chapter 9 and 10, and we keep going back and forth through them because there's so many different facets of how to look at this. Ecclesiastes is about living out the wisdom that the Scriptures speak about in our lives, and today's going to be no exception because we're going to land in the place where we talk about work and how we do that in our workplaces, uh, that we need to be thankful for the job jobs that we have and not be complainers or whiners who want to tear the system down. It's going to take a bit to get there, though. Uh, The sad thing, I think, today is a lot of people with jobs think their bosses are wicked simply because their bosses tell them what to do. But that's really the boss's job, is to tell employees what to do. And our culture rebels against anyone uh, trying to tell us to do something we don't like. But that's part of having a job. A job stinks, and that's why they pay you. It's like no one's going to pay you to sit around and eat Oreos and reruns all day because you do that for free, right? So, Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And we're going to talk about how Solomon walks us through these ideas of wisdom with these little vignettes that he has. He's going to talk a bit about folly and wisdom and how to live in wisdom. So this is how he starts chapter 10. Yes, we did look at these verses last week. We're doing it again, so just go with me. Chapter 10, verse 1, he starts off like this. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now the King James Version, I like how it says it, but it smells about the same by the end of it. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. Ooh, I like the way it says that. Now, I think Solomon's writing this to maybe get our imaginations going about how bad folly actually is in our lives. He, it's, he's saying that there's nothing wrong with this thing and how it starts with this smell, but yet some folly came along. These flies got into the ointment and they died and they made this thing stink all up. And it's terrible. And it kind of is written like Solomon is remembering something from his childhood. Like he came across and maybe his mother had some perfume and some flies, and it turned it really bad. I I know how this is because when I was a kid, I remember this smell in Santa Maria called the sugar beet factory. Anybody? Remember, okay, it's horrible when it started going outside of town. Now, the reason it sits so strongly in my mind was when I was about three years old, I'm at my grandma's house, and if you know me, I don't like a whole lot of food, and on my plate was the evil trinity of mashed potatoes and peas and carrots, okay? And so I I drank my milk, and I took all that stuff, and I put it in my milk cup, and I put my napkin on top, and I said, Grandma, I don't want my milk, because I was a sneaky little demon child. And my grandma takes my milk cup, and she's all, well, this feels like it's got concrete in it. This is really heavy. So she pulls it, she says, oh, eat it. And it smelled just like the sugar beet factory. So I understand when you have this thing that smells really, really bad, that kind of references something from your childhood, that's what Solomon's doing. And he's talking about this thing that wisdom is sweet. It's like this fragrant perfume that's really nice. Like the milk in my cup was great, but then when everything else got in there, it, it just wasn't so great. It's that foolishness can turn sour uh, all these places that we're supposed to live in wisdom because folly stinks. How about this? It's uh, one rash word can turn a romantic evening into the evening from hell, right? It, uh, how about uh, it takes uh, sometimes just that one person that drives to the roundabout in the wrong way to ruin a perfect day of driving. Yeah, we, I think we've, we've all been there. Uh, one room remark turn a conversation. Uh, one hasty joke can ruin a sermon happens all the time I I get that I get that Derek Kidner comments on this he says it is easier to make a stink than to create sweetness now in the book of Proverbs last year we talked about this a bit uh, and how it's meant to give us wisdom and so Ecclesiastes same thing it's meant to give us wisdom it's meant to be a godly fragrance when we read the words by looking at the failures in Solomon's life we can see that wisdom is not learned from a single example or a short list of commands it's this life of reflection that he's now wanting us to look at so we would understand that careful study, looking at the Word of God, understanding someone's life who has lived things can lead us into places of wisdom. And by the time Solomon gets towards the end of the book in chapter 10, he is continuing to do what he did still at the very beginning, and that is to warn us away from folly and steer us towards wisdom. And again, chapter 10 is like all these little vignettes, and it jumps around a lot. And you're going to feel like I'm jumping around a little bit today because that's what he does, but just kind of go with me, because it's all about seeing the difference between wisdom and folly folly. And there's this whole lack of organization that kind of drives these verses. But it's a lot like our lives. Our lives don't typically end up being very linear. They jump around a lot. Like one commentator says, one thing in chapter 10 often jumps to another without any obvious point of connection. Because that's a lot like our lives. It jumps around a lot. And so Solomon in doing this, he does have intention, but he's trying to take all these different things and contrast wisdom and folly. And he wants us to ask the question, are we living wisely or foolishly? Now most people and Christians can distinguish between good and evil. Like we know some things that are morally right and others are morally wrong. Sometimes we actually try to do the right thing and that's great as far as it goes. But the trouble is some of the most important decisions that we will make in life aren't between good and evil. It's between wisdom and folly. I know I like to make fun of country music a lot, right? And just to let you know, country music isn't evil, okay? See, I know you're surprised to hear me say that. But really, the wisdom and folly is, is it wise to listen to it? (laughs) That's all I'm saying. No, all all, all joking aside, all joking aside, there's this idea about the question of wise versus foolish and what we do. So it's like a, a job promotion. A job promotion isn't necessarily good or bad, but you have to ask, is it wise, or is it foolish? Like, is it going to take you more time away from your family? Is it is it going to give you the money you want, but it's going to cause you to leave things another other places? So is it wise or is it foolish? So you have to ask questions about that. Or maybe uh, moving somewhere else. I know a few people who just got so fed up with California, they moved to another state. And I have talked to them since. And they're like, I miss my family. I miss my connections. Because all they wanted to do was just leave and they got somewhere else. And so the question, moving isn't you know good or bad, it's is it wise, or is it foolish? Those are the questions. Uh, even something like taking out a loan, right? Some, you know, back in the housing crisis that we had, people were taking out loans, they, and it's not that loans were good or bad, it's that was it wise, or was it foolish? And that's where he's trying to push us towards. Some things aren't about good or evil, it's about wise versus foolish. Now, the biblical definition of a fool, which we have talked about the last couple weeks, is someone who is out of touch with reality. It's not someone with below average intelligence. So, it doesn't always show up on the low end of the IQ scale. It refers to someone who doesn't walk in the ways that there is a created, world, uh, created order to the world, and that God has called us to live within that created order. Uh, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, "...the fool says in his heart there is no God." That is someone that they label as foolish because there is a created world, and there is a God who made things." And don't get me wrong, folly is often associated with wickedness in the scriptures, but it doesn't have to be, because folly is not the exact same thing as wickedness. Uh, In the scriptures, a fool is perceived a lot of different ways. Uh, Someone with impulsive disobedience, uh, self-centered arrogance, not caring about the holiness of God or God's image in other people. Uh, It's not always malicious, but they just do foolish things. Uh, Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon has said that a fool is lazy in Ecclesiastes 4, bad tempered in Ecclesiastes 7, morally blind in Ecclesiastes 2, refuses to take advice in Ecclesiastes 9, lives a life that's not pleasing to God in Ecclesiastes 5. And so Solomon now in chapter 10 gets to a place and he says a foolish person stinks up a room. And he also says that they are directionally challenged. Uh, Chapter 10 verse 2, he says this, a wise man Wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And I was trying to help you understand that better last week. And so I found the Jerusalem Bible has this interpretation of that verse, and this is how it says it: The wise man's heart leads him aright, but the fool's heart leads him astray. So that's not about political parties and right-handed versus left-handed or anything like that. In the scriptures, this idea of the right hand was used to give a blessing, like when fathers would bless their children, they do it with their right hand. Uh, The right hand is associated with authority, which is why Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And so when it says the fool is on the left, he's telling us that a fool is going the wrong direction. They know the direction that God has called them to, and they're going the other way. So here are some good questions for all of us. Which direction would you say you are going in your life? Or which direction am I going in my life? Do we put ourselves in the way of temptation? Or do we run when temptation comes? Are we moving in the direction of discipling one another and speaking the gospel to each other? Or are we just kind of drifting spiritually speaking? Are we drawing closer to the people of God or going off by ourselves? Now, see, the fool goes off by himself because in his heart, he's leaning in the wrong direction. And then scriptures, the heart is the core of a person's being, the inside part that loves or does not love God. Charles Bridges defines the heart like this, the center of affection, the seat of knowledge, the source of purpose and emotion, the very soul of the spiritual life. That's how he does it. And so everything in our lives is going to kind of go the direction that our heart leans. It's why we're warned in the scriptures that our hearts can be deceitful above all things. So we need to understand that. And a wise man will start to go the, a certain direction because as he wants his heart to love and honor and worship God. That the wise man's heart see what God has done to rescue him and wants to live in humbleness because of that fact. It's kind of like when you put a plant in a room and if there's one window in the room, the plant's going to start to grow towards the window because there's the sunlight. But a foolish heart wants to grow towards the darkness. That's kind of what he's saying. The wicked man's heart leans in the opposite direction, which is where he ends up going. That's all about wisdom and follies. Hope you're following here. So here's another question. If you had to define your own heart and which way your own heart is leaning, which way would you say it's going? Is it going towards Jesus or away from him? Do you have a growing appetite in your life to know God, to understand His words? Do you read the Bible and it just kind of seems a little stale? Are you moving uh, towards God or away from God in prayer? Because the leaning of our hearts is going to determine a lot of our life. Sometimes people come to me and they will ask, what do you think God's will is for my life? And I'm always like, "Eh, that's a big question. And it it can be some of the dumbest things too. Like people assume I have like a red phone in my office that goes straight to the throne of God. And i can be like... Yes, Lord, Um, John, uh, should he get the blue or the red Honda? Oh, the green Toyota? Okay, right. That's not how it works. It's that that God's spirit comes and he leans and he takes our hearts and moves our hearts towards him. And we listen to that. We don't always follow our hearts, but we direct our hearts to understand what God has done by focusing on the gospel first. And that then will help our hearts lean in the direction that we want to listen to the things that he is leading us towards. Again, many things in our lives, it's not necessarily good or bad. Is it wise? or foolish. And that's where Solomon is kind of pushing us towards, especially in the ideas of our hearts. And so, many times, the place to start is to making sure our hearts are in the right place. We're directed to listen to what God has said to us, or at least in the right direction. And so the sad thing about a fool is he's on the wrong road, but he doesn't even really realize it. Verse 3 of chapter 10, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Part of the definition of a foolish person seems to be the he's the only person who doesn't realize he's being foolish. There's an ancient Malayan proverb, and this is what it says, a fool is like the big drum that beats fast, but does not realize its hollowness. Ooh, such good words. Dan Allander says the fool will follow a path that seems to be right even when the blacktop gives way to gravel and gravel to dirt and dirt to rocks and debris. Almost nothing will stop the fool from plunging ahead into peril. And so it's not that a fool is running around telling everybody, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I'm a, I'm a fool. It's that he thinks everybody else is foolish except him. That's what fools do. Fools usually believe that they alone are wise and everyone else is incompetent and foolish, which is a very foolish thing to think. Again, the application is don't be foolish. One of the reasons the Bible defines the difference between wisdom and folly is so we can begin to choose how to live in ways that honor God, that we can actually live in wisdom. We should not be afraid of people around us who come up and maybe confront us about something. If you, have, if you live your life with other Christians around you, when they step into your life and say some hard things, we're supposed to listen to that. We're supposed to listen to that godly counsel, but fools don't. Fools get angry or they, or they flip out whenever someone tries to talk about something. And what Solomon is saying, we need to be able to listen because foolish people don't listen. And don't worry, this is all going somewhere, so trust me because we're going to land somewhere. But Solomon's pointing out foolish situations and then he gets to the place of telling us, how to begin to deal with that. And we are going to get to the place where we talk about work because really, have you ever had a boss who's done something stupid? Maybe you're a boss and you've done something stupid. You know, of course we have. We all have those people. I once had a boss who allowed me to sit in his office while he manipulated money out of people. And he thought I'd be impressed. I was appalled. I was appalled. And I actually, I resigned because I thought he was foolish. Uh, maybe I was a fool because I needed a job and I just left my job, but whatever. Sooner or later, we're going to be frustrated by people's folly around us. It can be at home. It can be at work, wherever we are. Like some of you will live with foolish people, people and their, dis- their behavior is going to disrupt your life. My wife has to live with me. Can you imagine? Just crazy, right? Some of us will work with foolish people. They're, they can be lazy. They'll have selfish demands or make erratic decisions that make the worst workplace miserable. And if you don't know anybody like that, you've got to ask the question, is it you, right? Is it you? Everyone deals with that. And so Solomon now talks about fools in these places. Now, he's going to deal with it in government, but we'll bring that down into the workplace so it makes a little more sense for us. Because I think most Americans, when you think about government, we relate to like what Mark Twain said. He says, suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but I repeat myself, right? So Solomon's words in these verses are about government. We're going to whittle it down to us, okay? Ecclesiastes ten five through 7 which is what we started with. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So now he's reporting some things that he has seen in his own country, of which he is the king. Martin Luther, when talking about these verses, said, Just as dead flies ruin the best of ointments, so it happens to the best of counsel in the state, in the senate, or in war. Along comes some wicked rascal, and ruins everything. And it's the idea that when the wrong people get into power, everything starts to get turned upside down. And Solomon says these errors and foolishness in leadership produce evil structures that come underneath them. When it says the rich sit in a low place, some people think, oh yes, the reversal, the 1% got what we're coming to. And that's not what this is about at all. Like I mentioned last week, this isn't about government-assisted horses or things like that. That's not what Solomon says. What it means is that people with financial resources did not have the power to use them for the public good slaves sitting on horses while princes walk isn't a comment about slavery. It's a comment about how when folly sits on the throne and sits above everything else and everything is upside down. Like at Element, I try to never get political and talk about politics and things like that. I figure if i got a half an hour, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus and wisdom and what God leads us into and things like that. And I think when you look at you know, political leaders today, it's not hard to tell who is foolish and who is not. Most of them all of them are foolish. But Solomon said, the fool lets everyone know that they are foolish. And When things start to get turned upside down, a society is going to lift up things that are foolish and not wise. They will celebrate immorality. They will will perpetrate violence as being right. They will punish the righteous. They will deny the authority of God. And if you look at many segments in our society today, we are starting to do that. Now, I don't just want to sit with the government. Again, I want to take this down to we are and talk about our workplaces. So how do we respond in workplaces like this? Because part of our issues with our jobs, of which we will spend upwards of 100,000 hours of our life at work, so it's a very important part of our life, how do we deal with jobs and bosses and places that maybe are boring and that we don't like doing certain things? Again... Jobs are not necessarily good or bad, evil or righteous. Sometimes we look at jobs and we think, well, I would be a better person if I just worked there. That's not how it works. There's not Christian and non-Christian jobs out there. There are people who do those jobs that make it what it is. Many times we come at a job and we are discontent in life, so we become discontent at our workplace and we start to complain like everybody else who is in our workplaces. We complain about the metaphorical person on the horse, your boss, right? Then all of a sudden, we are walking on the ground behind that person. We feel like we're never appreciated enough. We never get paid enough. We're not listened to enough. But there are some important things to remember in this for wisdom. I'm going to give you four. Number one is this. There are not Christian and non-Christian jobs, okay? There are not Christian and non-Christian jobs. The wise understand this. Now, I guess, technically, there could be non-Christian jobs, right? Crack dealer, cracko, hitman, meth lab owner, boy band singer, stuff like that, right? But... But most jobs are biblically acceptable. Uh, musicians, farming, uh, fishing, textiles, education, politics, parenting, law, military. All those are in the scriptures. Which one's a Christian job? Any of them can be a Christian job. We cannot complain about a job because somehow we think that it wasn't good enough for God. Jesus was a blue collar laborer for the majority of his life. What makes a job a Christian job is the person who does the job in the right way. You and how you work the job. This could be anything from, you know, making fries to building rockets. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, you do it all to the glory of God. And I think you can do just about anything in your life, and God's fine with it. I think He's more concerned with how we do that thing, because it's going to be a reflection of our understanding of the gospel, of how we live out our lives in certain ways. And so, sweeping floors, to being a doctor, biblically, they can all glorify God. God's will is not some little dot that you have to figure out. God's will is direction serve love glorify its direction college kids talk to me all the time it's like i got to figure out you know what my major has to be so i can figure out my job and i try and always tell them look i think it's great go to school get a degree great but i i can't tell you how many people i know at this point who have a degree and don't work in the area that their degree is in they they just got one so you have to understand we serve god we love god and whatever we do we do it to his glory the second thing is this your workplace is not a family I know, these are hard words, hard words, but you got to hear me, okay? Some workplaces say, we're a family here. That is a lie, okay? <laughs> it is it is a lie. Families are held together by blood, not always by commitment. Families can do some horrible and terrible things to each other, but you're stuck because you're family. Yuri uh, Boffernbender, in his book, Understanding Children's Development, says this, a family is a group of people who are irrationally committed to each other's well-being. Here's how you tell if your workplace is actually a family. Stop showing up to work. And then they will fire you. And then you will show up and say, but you can't fire me. I'm family. And they will say, you used to be family. Now you're fired. Right? Because that's what they'll do. That's what they'll do. In a real family, you can't get fired. You can't. And families may break your hearts. They may betray your values. They may do something terrible. But they will always be family because you're connected by blood. That is not a workplace. So, at our jobs, we realize what they are there for. So, we work hard and we work well because it's a job and it's meant to build character. So, let me relate this to what we talked about at the beginning, okay? Uh, a job is great, it's like a good perfume. There's a job. But our complaining about our jobs solely creates a stench that makes this good things start start to smell bad. You ever look for a job because you really, really needed one or you wanted a new job and you found a job and you got it, you're like, yay, think of every kid like when they're when they're like they're teenagers and they want that first job and they get one putting away carts at Albertsons or obviously not at Costco, nobody does that. But uh or they, they're flipping burgers or something like that. And they get there, they're so excited for that first job. And then you get six months later, they sound like every other whiner who works there. It doesn't just stop as a teenager, though. Also with adults, we get a job, very excited about it. And the demeanor of the workplace, eventually everybody just starts to whine and complain. We create a stench. What if we as a people didn't create a stench? What if we were happy for our jobs? What if we understood that a job is a good thing? And we are not meant to be dead flies in the ointment of our work, but we are meant to speak about truth and hope and grace and live in a way that we understand the gospel first. And that's not going to be easy to be a pleasing aroma wherever we are. The only way that is going to happen is by focusing on the wisdom that God has given us, which means our focus first must be on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to be, because then our eyes are not on ourselves and our terrible, foolish bosses. We are not looking down at ourselves. We are looking up to Him, because that Are is the people who live in wisdom. In Colossians 3.22, it says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, that is not a verse that condones slavery. Also, slavery at this time, it wasn't racial like it was in America. At this time, a slave's job was considered to be boring. It was thought to be insignificant, something nobody would want to do. How do you deal with that in a way that honors God? What he says is, it is reverential worship and relationship with Jesus. That's how you do it. That's where it has to go. It is meant to be the dynamic behind everything that we do as a people who say we love Jesus. Third thing is this. You may not start here, but hopefully you can end here. Uh, We're supposed to choose and do our work in response to God's calling in our life. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Now, in, in English, there's a couple of ways we can define skillful, but here in Hebrew, it means gifted. The scriptures teach us to look at the things that we are good at doing. God gave us certain things we like to do, that we get to do out in our lives. Those aren't just accidents, they're a calling, right? Your maker, by giving you what you have, is calling us to certain ways to work in those capacities. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily your job is that, but you can also then donate your time somewhere in that thing that you like to do. Now, it's beautiful when your job and that gifting line up together, run in that and just, just worship God because of it. But even if it doesn't, you can still give up your time and energy in those things that you love and how God made you. Ephesians 2.10 says, uh, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. We have been put together by God in a certain way. He's placed things in our lives, prepared things in advance for us to do. And when we stop working for ourselves and our personal advancement, you know, mainly just for our money and comfort, we can work more for community and others in response to God's calling. And when that happens, we can have adventure and satisfaction, a new approach to work. We can actually be content. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't work to make money, okay, that's that's why you go to a job, right, right? Uh, You should charge a fair wage for a product if you make a product. But what happens in many cases is money and comfort become our goal. It becomes our goal, and the gospel ceases to be our goal, and money and comfort overshadow everything else. You know, many times you start in a job that isn't where your gifts are for a time. But don't complain about the guy on the horse. Be grateful for the job and be a sweet aroma wherever you are. Number four, so my last one, is we we redeem our work. We redeem our work. You think, well, how does my work fit into what God wants? Well, work the job and, and see where, where that goes. You know, God calls us to work hard and work well. Next week, we'll have some fun. We're going to talk about how to work smart as well, uh, we, where we bring hope and life and we don't bring a stench. And all that I'm saying, okay, don't get the idea that if you sit in a job, you have to take cruelty or, or something like that or injustice that you can't demand change. But too often... In our workplaces, we just end up being foolish, thinking that if we made all the decisions, everything would be better. And foolish people don't know how to run a, a- company or a state or a country, you know, or then we drive it into the ground. Sometimes you will have bosses who are foolish and they are bad tempered. I once worked for a guy who asked me what I thought about something. He had this idea, he goes, what do you think? And so I told him what I thought and I didn't agree with him and he was said I'm on a fire you right now. And I'm like, really? Well, that was weird. I don't know. Why'd you ask what I wanted? <laughs> you know, just go with what you want. How do you respond to something like that? How do we continue to bring this sweet savor no matter where we are? I'll give you two things. First off, Ecclesiastes 10 4 reminds us, calmness will lay great offenses to rest." So rather, when you're in a place like this and there is folly around you, especially at a workplace, rather than running away or taking the law in your own hands or claiming you have a right to be angry or you know, saying horrible things or not obeying with it till you're at your workplace, Solomon recommends a calm and quiet demeanor that turns away wrath. Why? Because that is the biblical response to foolishness around us. You don't share in people's folly. You don't agree with them. You don't drop to their level or rise to how loud they are when they start yelling and things like that. What we do is we remain Calm. Now, he's not condoning verbal abuse or saying there's never a time for people in authority to be taken down. He's saying that the best response to anger is to stay calm, not run away. Derek Kidner says this, it is better to have one angry person than to have two right? Simple, simple. Now, I know this because I am married, and sometimes my wife and I argue and get loud, and usually that's me, right? And it's always better when one person's calm and the other person, because you just, whoo, and the other person rises, and it's like, oh, you know, all of a sudden you're like 11, you know, up here. I was in, after, after the gospel class last week, I went down to Home Depot, and I'm, I'm looking for some paints. I had to paint this laundry room at our house, and there's this couple sitting there standing in front of the paint, so I wasn't just like listening to him, They are like in front of me where I needed to get to. And, and this lady, she, she's like, talking at her husband like this. And he goes, but, and she goes, don't cut me off. And he goes, you just cut me off. And I'm like, here we go, right? <laughs> Sermon illustration. Thank you. you know, but that's how you, you just, when you're calm, it lays great offenses to rest. Uh, so this is good counsel if you have an angry boss, if you have an angry teacher and you're a student, uh, if you're a kid and you have angry parents, uh, for people with angry spouses. The only way that you deal with that foolish anger is not to be intimidated by it but to re- and not to respond in kind, but to remain calm. And the only way you do that, again, is by the power of God's Spirit in you. It's by God's spirit in you that reminds you of the goodness of God's rescue of all of us. Uh, Jesus, by his calm response, laid great offenses to rest. Like when he is on trial, most of the people in authority are like, I have no idea why you're even on trial. And then Jesus goes to the cross. He forgives the sins of people who trust in him, including some of the very men who crucified him. And Jesus calls us to follow in his footsteps. Which leads to my second thing is this. We understand that we are all the same before God. We are all the same because we have all been a foolish people. And Jesus comes to rescue us many times from us. We know in the scriptures it teaches that no one is truly upright. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The NIV says it like this, O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who would stand? Because we have to understand there is nobody who has lived an upright life throughout their lives. And that should lead us to a place of humbleness and compassion for those who are around us. We get to be a people who can stop complaining. We cease acting like fools around us and live in wisdom that is centered with our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how we will step out, not just into our workplaces and families, but into our state and our city and the world around us, where we can then be a people who speak with less foolishness and more hope in life, because we start to do everything that is centered on the person of Christ. That is the only way we will start to lay all those offenses to rest, because we always want to get angry when someone gets angry with us. We're like, oh, I'll just, I'll show you, right? And we just jump right back. Our focus needs to be a wise people who lives have been centered on the good news of God's rescue of us. Because that is how we're going to interact in all these places. And when we talk about work and all this, I think one of the most amazing things about understanding the good news of the gospel and all this is that there is work that has been done. It's like I always say you know, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by God's work for you. And by understanding what God did to rescue and save us, I think that can help us in our places of work, in our places of home, in in the practical ways of every bit of our life. This is one of the reasons that Element, we're always trying to take you guys to this place of communion after the message, right? It's this place of reflection and understanding who God is and what He said and where He's leading us. Because you take that cracker and it represents Christ's body that was broken for us and that's why you break it. Then you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. The work that Jesus did to rescue us, to bring us back into God's family. Again, we get to be a people whose minds and hearts and lives can be refocused upon who Jesus is and his rescue of us. And only by understanding that focus will we ever be a people who can step into situations with foolish people of which we have been those And many times still are. And yet come in and speak in calmness and grace and hope. And I think that is where that when you look at what the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, that's where it's leading us. To always be a people who center on God's great rescue and redemption of us. Now the band's going to come up. And there'll be some uh, deacons in the back. And if you would need prayer this morning, if you're in a place where you, know, you have a foolish boss who is making your life miserable, or maybe you are the foolish boss and you're making everybody else's life miserable and you want some prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you about that. Uh, if, there are, if there's really anything going on in your life right now that you need prayer for, they'd love to do that. Because again, as we pray for one another, it re- resets and refocuses upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and His rescue of us. It puts us in a place where we understand that our life is not about us working to, for God's favor; it's that God has shown us favor by rescuing and saving us, and in turn, then we will live out our lives in response to what He has done in His rescue first of us. He we love because we are told that He first loved us, and so we live out our lives in ways that honor Him and His rescuing of us. So if you need prayer, there'll be people to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's meant to be a response to what God is doing in our hearts and lives. Uh, there's some snacks outside. You can grab something to eat, take some sermon notes, and maybe meet with some people this week and go through some of those questions. You know, what what... Foolish people around you, you feel like are messing up, messing up your lives? Or, you know, what ways do you think everybody else is foolish and maybe you're not? And maybe ask the people around you to be honest enough to speak into the foolish parts of your own life and that you would trust them enough to listen. Always with the intent of leading us back to the place where we understand God's good news and His rescue of us always focused back upon the gospel because that's where we always must land because that is the only solid foundation we as a people have ever or will ever have is God's rescue of us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you'd remind us of your goodness and grace. God, we know that you do, but I ask that we'd be a people who actually hear it and listen to it. And though many times our hearts are deceitful, I ask that you would take our hearts and move them to a place where they want to lean towards you and grow towards what you are calling us into. That you'd reveal to us our own foolishness and also your saving grace and mercy. And that we would live lives understanding that you are the only God and that you have come to rescue a lost people, and that we do not have to work our way to you because you have come to rescue us. And we simply need to rest in that great mercy and hope that you have bestowed upon us. Have us understand daily what the gospel truly is and what it means to us so we would then begin to live out different lives that we would touch the entire world around us with your great grace and love because you first loved us. Father, thank you for the very practical things you have written in the scriptures about wisdom and folly. And teach us to be a wise people. And yet we will understand that that wisdom only comes by your grace. So teach us to live in that grace and honor you in all that we do. We ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.